talking back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. In today's episode, we're going to start out with something a little bit different. We're going to each share one game that we've been playing lately. So Brendan's going to share his thoughts on Palaces of Carrara, and I'm going to be talking about So Clover. Then we're going to get into the main episode, what you come to Decision Space for, what you know, what you hopefully love. And we will be talking about Splendor doing a deep dive in our inner decisional spaceship straight into this gem-collecting, engine-building, mega-hit game. We'll discuss tempo, if this really is an engine-building game, or maybe an engine-builder light, and make the definitive call on if this game cannot be killed <laughs> as, uh, as we discuss the decision space with some beats left in its little heart. How was that intro, Brendan? That was awesome. That was great, Jake. Okay, cool. I do want to tell people just what we're thinking with this uh, intro segment. So we're calling it What's On My Mind. It'll be a little bit more of a variety, add some variety to the show. That's something uh, some people have asked for. Just give them a little bit more than just the game we're talking about every week so that they have some reason to tune in, even if perhaps the game uh, for the topic isn't of the most interest to them. So that's kind of the thought process behind this. We also know that a lot of people like about the show is that we dive right into the main topic. In an effort to strike some type of balance between the two positions, we're going to always include a timestamp in the episode that if you don't care about that, you just want to get into the main topic, click the timestamp and it will be just like every other episode. We'll just get straight into it with our ratings and reviews. How's that sound, Brendan? Sounds great. And for decision space historians who've been on this interdecisional spaceship with us for a while, you might remember this was a segment we did a long time ago last year at the early episodes of the run. So we're excited to sort of get back to this idea. And I am curious, Jake, what's been on your mind? The game I wanted to talk about this week is So Clover. Uh, It is a new word word association. Sorry, it's early. Let me have a sip of coffee. (laughs) It is a word association party game by Repos Games that reminds me very much of games in this kind of lineage before it, like Codenames, Just One, and that is High Praise, and I am intending it to be High Praise because I've had such an awesome time over the past two days playing this game with my family. Uh, We've probably played it. We played two sessions of it each time. We played three or four times each, and it was just a huge hit. Everybody loved it. So what this game is, is you get a clover board. And this game is kind of hard to explain. But what you have is a clover board. And then you will be given four cards. Each card is a square that will slot into the clover board with four words on it. So as you orient your clover board, you'll have two words on each leaf of your clover that are facing out. So you might have fire truck, and soup on one of your clovers. And what you have to do is write down one word that you would associate with those two things. So maybe I would write boil or something, like boiling, because fire makes things hot. Soup can get hot and boil. I don't know. I really gave myself a tough one. (laughs) Or chili. Maybe you put chili. Fire truck, soup. 
Okay, go on, go on. So you do that <laughs> four times, and because then you rotate the card. Now you have two new words. You rotate again, two new words. Okay. Uh, so you have four words all around it. And the one, what's amazing about this game is everybody's doing this all at the same time. So unlike a game like Code Names, where you sort of have to sit there and wait as people sort of orient themselves with the board if you're guessing you're just sitting there doing nothing here everybody is building their own clover at the same time then you take off all the words from your clover Mm. add in a random extra card that you didn't use at all shuffle them up and put your clover in front of everybody and ask them to solve it it's just and and then everyone's working together trying to unpick this puzzle that you've created uh there's a surprising amount of like depth to it we were sort of learning at at the beginning you know we were just doing whatever came to our mind first and then you know forgetting to pay attention to the words that might be in the middle of the clover that would be likely to throw things off so then we sort of evolved to start considering that and then we kind of evolved again to realize like if you can give really good clues for a corner right so like Boyle has to relate to fire truck or something and then the other word on the other side has to relate with it you can like help anchor them with one really strong association that helps everything come together super super fun interesting game uh i i honestly in just a few plays i like it as much as as just one i think it's i've had more fun playing this than uh, i ever had playing just one which is a game i really like uh it just seems like funner a little bit more interesting gives you a little bit more opportunity to be clever uh, individually which is really fun you feel so satisfying if your clover gets solved all the way um or you know and and it's this great cooperative experience it's really like a 10 out of 10 recommendation for me for for a family game it's one that you should not overlook because of like the silly clover board and the name which is you know not great <laughs> but but it's so clover um if you <laughs> When is one play of this game, Jake, everyone does their own clover. Everyone gets these four cards. They slot them in. Then you try to solve everyone at the table's board. And that's the play of the game. Right. And like the way you would award points is just if you get all four words, right, or cards in the right orientation on the first try, you get one point for each plus two points for doing on the first try. If you get it wrong, the person who's spectating would just remove the cards that are not right. And you get another chance. And then you just get points equal to the number you get right. And you're just competing with yourself. The game doesn't even give you any like milestones to achieve. Mm. So we played it with five um, people. So yeah, that and that seemed like perfect. So when I say we played three sessions of it, that's like 15 clovers that we were yeah. creating and solving. And it, you know, it just like did not get old. It was hilarious time and again. It sounds great. I'll give you one example. Well, two. So my, my dad, uh, the genius madman that he is, uh, when he was playing this game, his first Clover clue came out. He's like, all right, here, you guys solve this. And he had the word shot. And next to that, shots. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? I was like, oh, gee, thanks. It, it was something like, like there was like pistol that was shot. And then there was like jelly that was like shots. Uh, <laughs> clever. Huh. And then uh, last awesome. night we were playing uh, and I put the word showstopper for the clue giant and dessert because I'm such like a great British sure, Bake Off fan. Yeah, fan. Yeah. And I knew my wife would like know that for sure. The only issue was the word was desert, not dessert. Oh, no. <laughs> 
But my wife knows me so well. She's like, no, I know that Jake read this. There's no way he would put Showstopper for anything other than giant dessert. He must have misread this clue. And they got it right. (laughs) And they got it right. That's incredible, Jake. Oh, my gosh. See, that's why these games just pop. And it's... It's amazing to me. I knew that you had been really enjoying this game. You've been talking about it in our Discord. Um, and it's awesome hearing that you like it even more than just one, a game that I've heard you extol the virtues of in the past. So I think this is one I'm going to have to track down the next time that, that I have the chance of being together with like three or more people, which who knows when that will be. But yeah, that's awesome. I'm so glad you enjoyed for So Clover. It was, yeah, it was a great time. Highly recommend. Let's hear a little bit about Palaces of Carrara. Okay, so Palaces of Carrara is a Cromer and Kiesling design that is currently on GameFound, a new version of the game that changes the rules a little bit, but I think tries to take this classic Euro game that came out in 2012 and just bring it back into circulation. It was uh, originally published and then went out of print. Uh, You don't have to say it was originally published, Brendan. Everyone knows it was originally published at one point. Uh, But so it went out of print and kind of, I think, became a grail game for some people. It is very expensive on the secondary market. Uh, So Jake and I wanted to check it out just to see what it was like. Uh, Very strong design pedigree coming from Wolfgang Cromer and Michael Kiesling, and we like Euro games. We like uh, sort of, I don't know. We were curious. We like board games. We like board games. Why not, why not take a look? Uh, so the Palaces of Carrara, in it you're buying marble, which is represented by cubes of five different colors, uh, and you're using them to build different tiles in these five different cities that have a matching color uh, to them on the board. So for example, the most, and they range from the the least expensive to the most expensive. And I won't teach you the whole game, but just to give you a sense, right? Uh, If you buy and build building tiles in the black city, which is the cheapest one, when you score that city, you'll just get one gold back. So it's, it's not that rewarding. And at the most on the very left are the, is the white city. And I wish I remembered its name. Uh, But when you score this city, you will get three victory points for every tile value that you have there. So if you build use three white stone cubes to build a three in that city and then you score it you'll get nine victory points because it's the three on the tile times the three victory points in the city so this all comes together that's that's kind of a a cool little scoring mechanic there's a bunch of other objectives that rule the game end but the real centerpiece of this game is this costing wheel where every turn there's going to be 11 cubes somewhere on this wheel and the wheel is split into segments so on your turn you can you'll turn the wheel and that will reduce the cost of every single cube value by one. So in the first one, the the white cubes cost five, the yellow cubes, which are next cost four, uh, then, you know, green and red and blue and black. Oh no, there's six, not five, uh, but sort of they reduce. And as they spin along this wheel, they get cheaper and cheaper. So the game is really trying to suss out, am I paying the right amount to take these cubes? Um, can I afford to, to wait a little bit longer? Hopefully the wheel turns and they get cheaper and now's the right time to strike. Which colors am I focusing on as I try to build up these different cities? Um, a kicker to this though, is that only one player at the table can ever score any any one city. So you want to be the first to score a city that you really invest building a lot of tiles into, but you also want to make sure that you build enough tiles up. So it has that really good classic Euro tension of being an unsolvable puzzle. Of I want to make sure I have four tiles, five tiles in the city before I score it. But if I wait to do that, someone else is just going to score it and block me. 
You're not completely blocked in those cases because you can still score tile types. Uh, the tiles are all different buildings. So there's like libraries and schools. So you may also choose to score libraries. And if you do that, you'll activate every la library tile regardless of the city that it's in. Um, there's some shared endgame scoring objectives that automatically trigger at the end, but you also have a limited amount of times that you can score during the game itself. So you, you're trying to take as much advantage of scoring as you go throughout it too. So it's a really delicious sort of classic bland Euro with, a, I, I think, a really novel wheel mechanism that I, I've been enjoying this game. The first one, the first time we played this jig, it felt very opaque sort of almost ungrockable in its design. And the more I've played it, the more I've come to get a feel of, okay, what's the given economy of this specific game, this table, how the how the blocks are coming out. And I've had a lot of fun with it. I know you've been, we've been playing it together. What are your thoughts on the palaces of Carrara? Yeah, I think it's a great game. And one thing I should point out a little bit sad, the it's two days left to fun. So by the time people hear this episode, if they were like, oh, that sounds perfect for me. Yeah, you probably have missed the boat on it. Um, but that's okay because it has a great implementation on Board Game Arena where we've been playing a lot and would love to continue to play with y'all if you want to get in on a game. I have been really enjoying it and I think you're exactly right. The puzzle feels opaque at first, but after you play a game or two, it really just melts away and, and turns into a game that is a very interactive affair, a game where you you know have really big tempo considerations, as you point out, because only one person scoring that city. But it creates this really crazy dynamic where if you have achieved the number of buildings in that city to that allows you to score it, other people might stop building into that city so you can keep doing it and like get more and more there before you score it. Uh, so it's just like tons of really interesting interactions going on in this game, which I think uh, makes it really strong. I think it's definitely one I'd be interested in covering on this show um, at a later point. So uh, I, 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 have, I have good things to say about it. Good, uh, good impressions from me. Definitely. The layering of the different mechanisms creates a really rich decision space. So I completely agree. That's covered on the show in the coming month at some point. So get your plays in, y'all. Check out the implementation on Board Game Arena, especially. I think it's better. Awesome. Well, let's jump into the main part of this episode, the deep dive review of Splendor, starting with our ratings and synopsis slash slogans of the game. Brendan, I'll let you go first. Okay. It's deflating to return to a piece of media, a book or a movie or especially a game you once greatly admired to only discover it tarnished by time and no longer the wonderful thing you once thought it to be. So I'm incredibly relieved to report that Splendor still slaps. Eight out of 10, the decision space delivers compelling paths and tastely tactile choices through and through play after play what a jump you had me going in the first half i'm not gonna lie <laughs> let's go it's a good thing too what's a good thing you're rating for this because otherwise this might be a bit of a downer episode because i do not <laughs> feel the same way i would say there are a, a lot of things I admire about Splendor that we will get into the episode. It is, you know, an incredibly simple design. It does offer uh, challenging decisions. But at the end of the day, <laughs> I just, I, you know, it's, I, I, it's hard. I mean, we'll get into it. But like, I feel like the decisions there are not ones that are really interesting and exciting mm. to me. 
Uh, when I first started out in the board game hobby, Splendor was a game that I purchased. Uh, you know, it's one that is recommended a lot. And I did have fun exploring it then. But I quickly moved on. And coming back to it, I just didn't find a lot there for me. In fact, oh man, this is going to be rough, Brendan. But I would say that I, of all the games we've played, I would much rather play Kingdom Builder than this. So okay. because of this box I've put myself in, I think I have to put Splendor at a 3.5 out of 10. 3.5? Yeah. 3.5? Oh well, my I gave gosh. Kingdom Builder a 4. Well, you shouldn't have done that. Oh my gosh. This is grand larceny. Okay, first of all, Kingdom Builder should at least be a 6 for you. There's no way. Okay, but rating semantics aside i am shocked that's very interesting okay i'm really excited to get into the actual discussion that's can we do the game background really quickly so we can start discussing it let's do the game background splendor is designed by uh mark andre also who also designed majesty for the realm have you ever played majesty for the realm i have not played majesty for the realm okay i haven't even heard of it until now um so that's a no from me it is published by Space Cowboys. Didn't they also do time stories, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, so Space Cowboys is a really interesting company because it's basically a company founded by the three, as they call themselves, grandfathers of Asmodee when that company first started a long time ago. So I think they did time stories. They uh, currently publish like or have once published Drive Purr, uh, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detectives. There's a lot of really classic games that have been under the Space Cowboys umbrella just because of who sort of started this company. And I think for me, Splendor was the first game where I was like, oh, this is a publisher that their games are everywhere. And Splendor came out in 2014. It plays two to four players. Let's get into Brendan's rules overview. Splendor is a resource collection engine building light race game. In Splendor, there are two main components, gem tokens of five different colors and development cards sorted into three increasingly more expensive and rewarding tiers. Each of these cards has three features, a cost in gems, the amount of victory points a player earns by purchasing it, and a gem, which if purchased, grants the player one permanent gem of that type, effectively discounting the cost of future purchases. Each turn offers the player four core action options. They can claim three gem tokens of different colors, take two gem tokens of the same color, so long as four or more of that gem type are still in the supply, reserve a card by removing it from the central play space and claim a gold token, a wild token which counts as any type of gem, or purchase a card from the central display or one previously reserved by that player, paying its cost in gem tokens minus any gems you have permanent versions of. Noble Tiles reward players with victory points for being the first player to gain access to a stipulated assortment of permanent gems. For example, four blue and four white gems, or three white or three red gems, and three green gems. The player with the most points at the end of the round in which any player has 15 or more points is crowned the victor. Thank you, Brendan. That was amazing. Incredible. <laughs> Just taken aback by the quality of these week in and week out. Well, let's let's start with our personal histories with the game. I, I sort of talked about mine a little bit, and I'm interested to hear what your history is with Splendor. So Splendor is a game that I similarly picked up and played a bunch when it came out. So 2014, I had been playing board games already um, uh, quite a bit, just as my emergence back into the hobby alongside my wife. And I never owned Splendor, but it was a game that sort of 
we talked about it being a mega hit and Splendor was everywhere in 2014. I think there's a lot of gamers who bought Splendor, played it 30 times and then never wanted to play it again. Um, I didn't have that experience. I played it a bunch at friends' houses and then I played it a ton on the app. I also recommended it consistently, that app to to friends and even non-board game playing friends. My brother-in-law, uh, who's a very busy guy, he's a doctor, so he doesn't have a ton of time to play games, but he was looking for something fun on his phone. I recommended Splendor to him. He really enjoyed it. Um, so I think it's important to contextualize for this episode Splendor as being this sort of crossover hit in a way that I think it's interesting you brought up so Clover and Codenames. In some ways, I think Splendor does for engine builders what Codenames does for party games for crossover. Like you can play this that. game with anyone. I can't believe you said that. Why? <laughs> just those games are so fun and exciting <laughs> and Splendor is just like so, so drab and not exciting. <laughs> I, I should have brought the tokens up. I wanted to clank the tokens in this episode. Oh, There's yeah. nothing unexciting about that. I feel like that is like a backhanded compliment or whatever. It's just like that when people are like, well, Splendor's so great. It's got these chunky tokens. It's like, yeah, but like what else they're like no 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 these tokens they're great it's like okay oh cool. my gosh i think that there's interesting decisions going on where you yeah. have to think about what your what your opponents are doing at the table and there, there's more under the hood than you do so you think that the decision space is tiny am i right no no i mean i, I wouldn't say it's tiny in so what we're doing now is getting into our characterization of the decision space starting with the size and I think it's like a medium. I mean, it's it's not tiny. And I know it's not tiny because it's certainly not a game that I've solved or come close to. You know, you're regularly whipping me at this game. I think we played, what, 10, a dozen times and I won maybe twice. So I know there's definitely skill ceiling in this game as well. I think, well, struggling to articulate my point here, but I think like, it's just like, something different than being a tiny decision space which was my criticism with kingdom builder is it feels like the decision space to me is just like not interesting like i think mm. like it's just like not a puzzle that i was like having fun interacting with i think it's really interesting that kingdom builder comes up as a comparison here too if only because you so much jake one thing that we've discovered as we've done more and more episodes on the show really like games that have injections of randomness as new information throughout the course of the game, meaningfully so, and a lot at once, not just a single card flip, right? These like Castles of Burgundy, new round, here's a huge infusion of new tiles, or Azul, here's a new round, all of the factories get reset. And both Splendor and Kingdom Builder are games where the board state is created. Uh, and once it's created, the game becomes somewhat known, right? What That first initial board is really, really important for figuring out how the play of Splendor is going to work. Because in my mind, the decision space is like small, medium. Um, what your opponents do matters in terms of how you pursue different paths to victory. We're going to get into it. Some people are already thinking these guys are not going to talk about the fact that there's a broken strategy in this game. We're going to talk about it, but we're not going to talk about it just yet. And we'll see if we agree that we think it's broken. But in my mind, the interesting thing about Splendor and Kingdom Builder, the board comes out and then you have to make decisions based on what that board looks like and find your optimal path through those cards to 15 points. It's a race game, first and foremost, in my mind. And there are new cards that come out in Splendor, but they kind of just, they don't hugely affect how much your path to victory shifts. 
outside of giving you little bumps here and there in terms of accelerating your engine or not. Um, and I think this is why, in my mind, the reservation card reservation mechanic is so key and why a lot of the early rounds of Splendor I spend reserving cards is because it's trying to lock down a path through the decision space. And I think the best people at this game are good at assessing paths through that decision space and adapting when that new information does come out. There's more new information coming out than something like Kingdom Builder. But I think in my mind, one of the things that might hold it back from being a game you really enjoy is that it just dribbles out in terms of new information and it never feels that exciting. I think that is, uh, yeah, I think that's really a perceptive point that I probably hadn't, or that I hadn't even thought about myself, but I think that is part of it. And I agree that like, the random information is like small and doled out and usually not impactful unless it like is unless it just totally throws the game because the perfect card has come out to somebody. And I think that's something like a form of randomness too, that is like more made more difficult for me to stomach in a game like this, where it like so much of the game state is known. Right. Mm -hmm. And it feels like when that happens, it just completely disrupts the game so much more than when a similar amount of random luck throws a game that has like more infusion of randomness throughout because i feel like it's you know and again this is like probably my brain falling into some sort of like logical fallacy but i'd like accept like i'm playing a random game where in splendor i don't i feel like this is like a super math game that Mm. sometimes at the end just like thrown and it is at the end when it typically happens i feel like so many of our games come or the games i've played come down to like the last turn right like you said it's a race it should be measured more in like number of turns than points um so having a card that comes out that allows you to purchase it right away instead of spending one more turn collecting gems is like enormous right that's fast forwarding you like one eighth of the game yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. And I, I, it brings up an important point about Splendor, which is it's this tension between inevitability in terms of, okay, in any given game of Splendor, there's multiple ways that you can play it. You can play Splendor to be slowly building an engine by buying row one cards that are giving you gems that are discounting the cost of future cards. The goal of that strategy is to make the game last as long as possible so that you can start gobbling up more expensive stuff. Uh, for cheap and buying free cards, get your engine online. And I think when you do that, it gives you this inevitability on the table aided by those noble tokens that really exist to help make that strategy viable, right? Because it's giving you free points if you can last long enough to get these set collected sets of gems collected that just give you, okay, here's three points for getting to this milestone Um, versus people who are racing by buying tier two and tier three tiles, reserving a path through those and trying to just get points without focusing as much on the engine. Maybe they'll buy one or two cards and then really hone in on two or three colors to force through. So I think partially what I like about Splendor is the tension at the table between those different paths to victory. And the inevitability, like you're talking about, eventually the game will end because eventually all cards will be free and eventually people will score. But I agree that the feel of that inevitability in this game, as it plays out, just being this random flip, there's something about it that can feel when you're on the opposite end of it, like a gut punch, when the other person is actually like put in a bunch of time working towards it. But that just like random flip, oh, they can afford it. Oh, now they beat me by one turn can feel bad and frustrating. And I'm with you on that in some ways in Splendor. It's also why we've had a few game states that completely stagnate, which I think in terms of games, it's pretty rare that when in the 
all the games we've covered that we've ever had a completely stagnant board space where basically instead of doing anything, we collected gems until we had bought, collected all the gems possible. And then we like took turns reserving cards off the top of the deck to see if we could buy anything, right? Or just to collect gold to kind of cheat into something because we didn't want to be the one who bought something that revealed something that would then give enough points to the other player to win the game. Yeah, which is like a weird dynamic of... It, it can be like interesting, right? Like that's what a lot of people like about a lot of Kinesia games where it has this tension of like, I the best move for me would be to pass, but I can't pass. And here like reserving is almost allows you to stall for a turn um, in, in some situations. And I mean, I think that is sort of interesting and clever. And then you have reserved all three and you're sort of back to like, uh, I guess I'll buy this to get one more red, which... <laughs> which is like peak excitement in this game for me. I don't know. Um, it, But I do think the, I, I wonder too, uh, you're talking about the different viable paths through the game. I've, I mentioned playing this before and I definitely never at that point discovered this secondary strategy where you can buy just big cards and neglect the first row of cards that a lot of people think is overpowered. So the vast majority of my plays have been with everyone at the table pursuing this like engine building strategy. I would hazard a guess that is how this game is mostly played. Mm. Um, I don't think it's like very intuitive, right? You talk, we talk a lot about signposting in this game. It's definitely not intuitive that you can just skip the first row, right? And I think if more people were playing that, people would talk less about Splendor being like a great, entryway engine building game because we play that way it's not really an engine building game at all yeah because because the game length is such that your engine never really gets online is what you're sort of saying right yeah well you're just you're sort of like bypassing building up an engine which is like where you start small and then Mm -hmm. that allows you to do the next thing which is bigger and that allows you to do the next thing which is bigger and have a sense of momentum it's just like I'm just going to do nothing for three turns and buy this card. And I'm going to do nothing for three turns and buy this card. Well, you're not doing nothing. nothing. You're collecting gems. (laughs) And I'll do nothing for two turns, you know, towards the end and get this like four point card. And uh, yeah. Well, okay. So, I mean, I guess I'm perhaps being unfair to the game by saying you're doing nothing, but I think that might be my criticism with the decision space, which is that like, it feels so similar i never feel like i'm doing anything different Mm. on really any of my turns whenever i buy a card that feels like exactly the same amount of excitement as any other time i've bought a card and anytime i collect gems it feels like pretty much the exact same excitement of any other time i've collected gems um and so you know even though there is you know a a, agree like a small medium decision space there it's like so similar between decisions that even if it's hard, I just don't, I'm not having fun like grappling with it because I just don't get like uh, any sort of like variety in the puzzle. Everything feels pretty much the same. I because of the, there's no special powers associated with any of the gems, and the texture between them doesn't feel that different. The relationship between them doesn't even seem like it matters all that much. Um, I think that's a fair criticism of the game. But I will say I've definitely had turns where I take gems, and it's a really exciting turn of taking gems because say. I'm sitting here making the decision, right? There's four blue on the table and then there's a few others. And those four blue make the decision space a little larger because I can I now have the decision, do I take two blue or do I take three of the different types? Um, and how is me taking those 
to blue going to affect tempo in the game? How's it going to affect Jake's ability to go for the card that he's going for? I think that when I'm taking gems, I'm not just thinking about the implications of my gem taking on my engine, but my gem taking on your engine. And I'm not saying that that rocks my socks off like I just got a Christmas present and I'm seven, but I do really enjoy the moments where the game asked me to sort of think about how that gem collecting fits into the tempo of the game and gives me the tools to play with tempo in that way. And I really like that about the game, that the gem collecting is about tempo to these different paths, these different stepping stones to the end game. There is a lot to consider, right? The decision is, if I try and take like a more objective view of it, interesting. There's there's a lot going on. There's what you're trying to collect. There's what your opponent's trying to collect, especially in a two-player game, right? It becomes very zero-sum. Um, and I think also it can be interesting when you play with the fact that you have such a limited quality quantity in the supply of total gems, right? It's totally plausible that you could just be like, Oh, sorry, Brendan, I've got all four green gems and now I'm just going to like sit on them for yep. as long as possible. And that's, that's like a, probably my favorite part of the game. There, there was a real economy going on alongside it that you can explore. Though ultimately I feel like often it, it's not as impactful as I'd want it to be because to hold those gems back, it means like I'm forced into playing less efficiently because I'm not able, right? I'm not able to take turns collecting three gems as often because I have a limited supply. So I probably have to spend them sooner than I would like to maximize the impact of it. Um, and eventually, right, I'll just have to spend them and you'll be able to get them. Uh and so I feel like the impact isn't as great as I would like it to be, but it's still fun that that is enabled. I am mm-hmm. curious when you talk about taking two gems as opposed to three gems, that didn't seem to come up very often in our plays at two. And I think that's partly because it's like a two right at two player. There's four total gems of each color in the game. So if anybody takes one, that option yep. is off the table. So it seems pretty rare that that would come up and even rarer that you would even opt to take that option when it does come up since it is like purely less efficient uh, than getting three gems with one action, right? It's a pretty significant difference there. there. Obviously, there would be times for it when you're trying to end the game, right? And you need two. But to me, that like didn't factor very much into the decision space at two, much more at three players, which I think... Uh, I actually prefer the game a bit more with more players in it for that reason, just like opens things up a little bit. Uh, But I'm curious your thoughts on that mechanism in the game. Yeah, so I really enjoy that mechanism. And I agree that it's very, it it adds a needed amount of texture to the gem collecting. But I agree, Jake, that this is actually a game that I enjoy more at three than two for both the gem piles and also because of the way that the strategies feed into one another um, and the dynamics at the table become much more interesting. If two people are pursuing the, the tier two strategy and they're competing on one or two colors of what they need to be purchasing, it can be, it can increase the viability of the engine building. And then it, enables these sort of mid-game pivots where okay should i collect on my engine for a little while allow the other person who's going for these tier two cards to clear some out and then find a path and strike and i think in this level in the two-player game oftentimes we enjoy two-player versions of these sort of more more abstracty puzzly games than the higher player count games that was true of king domino it's true for me of azul um but here i think 
three-player Splendor is way better than two-player Splendor because you need those dynamics at the table to make the decision space more interesting. Because in two players, you don't have that tension as much between the engine and the and the just sort of straight racing to level two because it's so much better in most boards to just race to, towards that tier two. And there's less competition for those limited resources. It's just sort of how I see the game. I'm glad to hear that because most of my plays were with you at two in prepping for this episode. I did a couple at three. I didn't do any at four, which I feel like now I should probably try. And maybe that would, so maybe perhaps like the fact that I'm playing this mostly at a player count that we agree is like not the best player count is part of the reason that like I was left so wanting with my experiences with Splendor. My point earlier, too, about how the board doesn't turn over as much is definitely true in two-player, a little bit more true in three-player. And then, of course, in four-player, the board's turning over a lot more because you're adding more gems to the economy, not more cards, which I've always found to be a really interesting design decision that how much the card flow changes at the different player counts because it makes it a little bit harder to plan. In two-players, you can really plan a path. Yeah, and I think like that is something that I push back on in games is when I like... And I think, again, this is why I keep coming up with the comparison to like Kingdom Builder, where I know you, you disagreed with this when we talked a little bit beforehand, but like I felt like the game wants me to like sit there and do math, mm-hmm. like on a lot of my turns, like to really like sit there and count out the gems on the cards available. Okay, well, how many like blue gems are out here in total, you know, to like figure out like when I'm taking three gems what is actually the most efficient gems to take how many green gems how many red gems you know how many are you know okay i'm only one away from red and how many cards and it's it's just like a lot of counting and math that i refuse to do (laughs) so i just like you know and i think that an okay way to play the game right i think you mentioned that was how you're playing the game a lot of sort of just like letting it wash over you making this educated guess but i think like the fact that I felt like it is countable and like not wanting to engage with that counting was part of the part of like a personal frustration I had with the game too. Just how much arithmetic sits at the front of the game. I think that's another fair criticism. Of and the I think game. that especially at two, uh, yeah, two players, right? Especially because the stagnant nature of the board, it emphasizes that arithmetic rather than minimizes it when you get the increased turnover. I do think there's a few things that the game does to try to ameliorate that issue some, which is that there's strictly better and strictly worse cards from an efficiency standpoint in the game, right? Uh, In level one, it emphasizes this really well. There's cards that cost four of one of each color, or maybe four of one color, uh, excuse me, and give a victory point. There's cards that just cost three. They don't give a victory point, but they they only cost three. There's cards that cost uh, four of some different gems and give no victory point. And then there's cards that cost five and give no victory point. So that's a pretty big span in what they can give to you. And I think once you get a sense for that, it helps shortcut the mental math a little bit, just because I find myself pursuing the better cards. And then especially early game. And then it tapers off as you are looking towards tier two and tier three to see what fits the position and the path that you've moved down already. Yeah. I think this is such a weird thing about the game that you could have a five cost tier one card or what happens. It feels like a lot is people will buy up the good tier one cards that have a cost of three, right? Cause that's just, I mean, if you spend three gems for something that's going to give you a permanent gem, that's just like great efficiency. Mm -hmm. And it's great point efficiency to 
get the ones that cost four and give you a point. So you end up with a game state that has five cost tier one cards that give you no benefit. And then you look up and you're getting three or two points for cards that cost the same amount of gems or one more gem. And it's just like, I think that also like leads to like the stagnant. It's like nobody wants to buy these tier one cards anymore. So I don't know. I mean, I think that's like a just a weird thing about the game. And I think a big part of that too is that it's the game is trying to make every play of the game feel a little bit different in terms of what the best strategy might be at the table, right? Because if these really efficient tier one cards keep coming out, then the engine building is going to be emphasized because the engines are going to come online earlier in the game. Getting to the noble tiles is going to be cheaper than if all of these five cost cards flip into the tier one at the start and it's like, oh, it's going to be a slog. We'll just skip tier one and go to tier two. And I think that's a design decision that I enjoy because it means the puzzle of the game. The game itself is partially a puzzle figuring out the path through these cards. But I also could see how that's for you could for someone else be something you totally bounce off of where it's like, Oh, this sucks. This is just a really stale play of this game because now we can't even use tier one. The game's barely working. There's this whole system that like isn't working. And I kind of see where they're coming from even though I have fun with the puzzle of finding my path in any given board state. Yeah, I think it's a little bit, it's just weird, right? I don't know if I even, if it's even something that I've strongly bounced off of about it, but it's weird when you're like, especially when you think about showing this game to new people, a lot of brand new gamers are, are experiencing Splendor and you have like this game, say we're like, okay, we well have these three tiers of cards and then like the optimal pass through the game is just like ignore one third of it. It's just like a strange thing, but I do, Totally see your point that from like a variability perspective, less so from turn to turn, but like from game to game, it definitely does add something there. I wanted to ask, what what do you think the type of decision space is in Splendor? That's a really interesting question. I want to can I I want to make one more point to what you just said, and then I want to okay. answer that question. Is that okay? Just Perfect. really quickly, the one other thing that the variable costed cards do that is that I think is sort of interesting is because you're getting permanent discounts, it gives you, as you do build an engine, maybe an incentive to buy a card that you would have completely ignored otherwise. So it adds to that tempo consideration a little bit more too, because the card cost is sort of dynamic in that way, where sure, if a five, if there's a five cost card uh, and you have no gems, it costs five to you, but it might cost two to me because of the gems I've already collected. And f- five to jake because he doesn't have any gems collected in those colors and i think that becomes interesting where different cards mean different things to different players on the table and having this sort of spectrum gives you texture to the decision space where no card is equal to everyone at the table once the game is played out a little bit which i really appreciate and of course that'd be true if all the cards were sort of costed really neatly and really the same but then the game wouldn't have that same texture and wouldn't emphasize the puzzle which is trying to figure out the most efficient path based on your position okay yeah okay Okay, but I, now I have to respond to that. Great. <laughs> and then we'll talk about the type. 44 <laughs> minutes the door episode. <laughs> because I think, yes, you're right in that every card has a different cost to every player, but the efficiency of those cards is still the same across the table, right? Uh, a five cost tier one card could be cheaper to me than you, but it's still inefficient to buy in almost all cases. The thing that would change that is if the tier one engine building strategy was more of a focal point, because when you get to a situation where everybody is going for the tier two strategy or prioritizing that strategy, then you get less discounts overall. 
and less stratification in the cards. And that creates this game state, which I think we kind of experienced a lot, especially in two players where everybody's kind of evaluating the same cards similarly. Mm. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a fair point. All right. Let's let's talk about the type of decision space in Splendor. It's such a weird one. Um, so most engine builders would be waxing. That would be like very easy to identify, right? You're building up your engine and that allows you to do more. More things. Yeah. But in Splendor, you don't do more. You never do more. You always do the same. But sometimes you do free, which feels now you're right. Okay. What, what, how do you characterize the types? Do you think, I think it's, it's static? I think it's incredibly static. And I think, yeah, that that would be, you know, it's never going to be perfect. Uh, obviously like on the first turn of the game like you can't buy gems you can't buy cards at all so in that like very strict sense you do have a waxing decision space from turn one to the last turn of the game but i think like when you think about like the actual decisions you're making it's like take gems buy card take gems or buy card and that's like the decision you're confronted with on every single turn and reserve you could also reserve cards the most important decision in the game. Um, I think that the decision space, we've always talked about how our ever since that very first episode on types of decision spaces, where we talk about our sort of categories of waxing, waning, dynamic, and static decisions, we've talked about how they're spectrums and, and nothing falls neatly into one. And I do think Splendor is a weird case of being a sort of a static decision structure with a dynamic decision space. Uh, in terms of because of the way that the cards are shifting and the input of what your opponents are doing matters. Uh, but it's probably, I agree, it leans more static than it does dynamic. But I only say dynamic because of the way that your agency builds as you collect gems and then reduces a little bit and then builds again and then reduces a little bit. Or the way in which you can reserve cards and then you can't reserve cards at all because you got your limit of three. The reservation mechanism is most certainly the most dynamic aspect of the game right that's like the biggest decision points in the game i think i agree because that's when you're like calling your shot you're like i will buy this card or nothing out here is worth pursuing so i'm just going to reserve the random card and then in a sense that's also calling a shot in a different way Uh, so i think we should spend a little bit of time sort of discussing the reservation mechanic and also kind of like what that means for the tempo of the game So I think that this is the most important mechanic in the game of Splendor. I think that this mechanic in some ways saves the game and creates a far more interesting decision space than would exist otherwise because it allows you, uh, one, it creates the ability to not have people just undercut you on certain cards. If you're willing to spend a turn to collect a card and one gold, which is really valuable, uh, you can guarantee that you will always have the ability to pay for that card. So you can lock in plans, but it also can be used flexibly to disrupt the plans of your opponent right if it's mid mid game and i see you going for one of these more expensive tier two or tier three cards and you've really over invested in a certain set of gems maybe the the card in tier two that costs five green and i see you already have four green and you didn't have very many green in your engine there's not a lot of other green on the table oh let me just reserve that five green card from you and make you waste a bunch of your time, uh, I gain tempo there because I'm gaining gold that I can use to spend on other things. And I'm forcing you, uh, I'm essentially making your previous turns you spent collecting those gems wasted. And I think knowing when to do that aggressively versus defensively uh, and why you're doing it is the game of 
splendor in some ways. For me, that's the fun of the decision space. That was something I missed when I first explored this decision space. I want to give credit to Splendor because there is a lot to figure out that I missed until exploring this game with you and talking with people about the game in our Discord, um, which is, I think, a pretty big accomplishment for a game that is on its face so simple that there is a lot to like figure out and solve. It's a it's really a tough nut to crack, more so, I think, than even some of the other games that we played that I enjoyed quite a bit more. Uh, and I think the reservation mechanic is one that I definitely didn't realize how valuable it was early on. And I think part of that is like my first lens that I always come to games with is like just play it efficiently. So when you think about like I could take three gems or I could take two gems or I can take one gem. I was just wanting to take three gems in almost all cases because that like struck me as so much more efficient, but I wasn't winning games doing that, Um, which I think speaks to the value of especially the reservation. And it speaks to like how important tempo is in the game because it's not just getting one gem at the expense of three. It's getting one gem, guaranteeing yourself some portion of your path through the game that's going to be a much quicker path through the game than if that card is taken by someone else or right like you point out it can be a great way to set your opponent back a turn or more if they've wasted multiple turns collecting that and then lastly about reservation that i miss is like one gold is not one gem it Mm, is probably closer to like two gems in value just because that and, and again this goes to tempo that flexibility enabling you to continue to progress with your path by keeping you open in multiple directions uh, can absolutely save you time versus if you have three different gems or two different gems, but neither line up perfectly to to take a card that is going to give you points or progress you to victory. That means it's actually setting you a whole entire turn back, which is certainly worth more than a couple of gems. I think that this is why the arithmetic and the counting problem for me doesn't play factor in as much is because yes, the, the, the cards being different values gives you some degree of not having to care as much because of what you're saying, Jake, the value of certain things is variable within the game. And I think the gold is such a good example. And I say this if only because of the game is about tempo, the value is, is set. Like, like you said earlier, we made this point already. A five cost card is always a five cost card in terms of the sheer efficiency of it. But because the game is about overlaying different cards and trying to maximize the efficiency of any one turn and across multiple turns, right? It's not having the most discreetly efficient turn. It's about how can I make these next three turns the most efficient possible? And how can those next three turns play into how efficient my next three turns after that and my three turns after that are going to be in terms of not having any waste in my actions, right? The best, the the dream way of winning Splendor is you you get to 15 points, you dust your opponents, you have no gems left over and you have no reserved cards left. You've reserved cards, you've spent gold, you spent all your gems and you've won the game perfectly efficiently. And that's actually much more difficult to do than it seems in terms of having waste. Um, and I think that part of the puzzle is really fun too. One decision that can be really tough for me uh, is in terms of, and I haven't seen this in when we've played Jake, is I really like reserving cards, but I hugely value having the gold available to push higher. And I don't like spending it because I like staying flexible, right? But I give up a huge opportunity cost, which is 
that it the gold allows you to push to the cards that have a concentration of a single color earlier, right? You can get to where you buy one of those tier two cards that cost five of a color, maybe one or two turns faster Then you have that discount for one or two more turns over the game. And it's for me, the decision of, okay, is now the time that I spend this gold, which is a really limited resource to try to push higher because of the limited economy of gems in specific colors, or do I hold it and wait just a little longer and stay flexible? I think that decision is so fun. And there's not a lot of feedback. And that's part of partially what I think can make people say this game is too frustrating, is the game doesn't generally jump out and say, oh, that one decision you made on turn seven, spending your gold then was the right decision, because it's quiet about it. And that's why I've appreciated it the more I've played it. Great point. That is definitely an interesting decision. One that now that I've been playing it with, you know, prioritizing the reservation action is something I'm just like now starting to confront. I I think the game we have live now, I've got like three gold. And I'm like, because I've like reserved cards that I can't buy (laughs) because the decision was so static. It's like, okay, well, what do I do with these? I don't want to like waste them to buy like a crappy tier one card but I might have to because my opponents are smart and (laughs) making this difficult. Uh, But that three gold is so powerful too, right? Because it acts as a shield for me knowing what you could do, what your paths might be. Because so much of the game is about me sort of exploiting the direction that you've gone because I can look at the gems that you have and say, okay, Jake is going after this card or this card or this card. And when you have those three gold, it adds all of this fuzziness where it's like, I have no idea what Jake's going to do because he could do any number of these things. And the answer might be, you know exactly what you're going to do because you're saving that gold. I I don't know. I just love that. I love the fuzziness that adds. Yeah. And that also speaks to the value of reserving a hidden card because especially when you take a tier one or or sorry, a tier two or potentially a tier three uh, hit card from the top of the deck and just hide it. Um, that gives you like, again, a, a huge shield as opposed to your opponent just knows like, okay, or I know Brendan's obviously going for five white gems because he has the card that costs five white <laughs> gems. So now I can slow him down by taking white gems or maybe even buying a card that gives that bonus. Um, so that can be you know a really nice shield as well of your intentions in the game definitely that's maybe now's a good time to talk about the nobles yeah speaking about say, intentions well in the yeah game. and i think maybe the segue to this is like why do people get frustrated with mm. it and i think maybe part of it yeah is the fuzziness of it but i think part of it too might be the fact that like the signposting in this game is potentially some people would say a trap and I think that comes in with the tier ones being something you can totally neglect and and that being not just like viable, but probably something that you should be defaulting to in the game um, unless the game state sets up otherwise. And I think maybe the other one is like how important it is to get these noble cards. Yeah, they sit at the top of the table. They're made of this thick cardboard. They look really enticing. They have three points sitting there and it they're free. You didn't have to do anything. You just get it for free for doing things you already wanted. But the the trick of it is that, no, you didn't. You spent a lot of effort exerting time and efficiency opportunity into pursuing maybe things you didn't even need based on the board state uh, that's already there. And I think for me, they're... They exist in the design to help ground you in your decisions from the first turn, right? If you've never played Splendor, Splendor before, you sit down and you say, oh, all three of these nobles have red in them. I will collect red gems because I can't be doing anything that wrong if I build up a red gem engine. And you're kind of right. But 
to a, a more experienced player, they're going to find a path around you that they're going to beat you if you spend too much effort going for those and other people are also going for them. So in my mind, they add this important tension um, and they're good until in they're bad unless everyone's trying to do a strategy that doesn't consider them at all. And then they might become a little bit more relevant. So they're like a trap signpost. They're signposts pointing off a cliff. And again, like when I first played this game and you play that engine building strategy, they become very relevant, right? Because you're getting so many cards. And the only way to get enough points to that is like to collect one or more of these noble cards. I think that is, you know, part of the thing that like fuels this belief that this is like this engine building game and it pays off with these noble cards. When in reality, that's just like not the best strategy in the game. I, just, I think it's, it's, it's weird. It's a weird one to me, Brendan. And it, it reminds me of our discussion a little bit about res arcana where mm. you sort of are presented with this like puzzle where it's like i don't have very much uh resources at the start and then you realize wait you can just like discard all your card for resources in the first turn of the game and buy one of these places of power that almost like assures your victory in like four turns um and 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 what a difference the game becomes once you start like you you realize like you change your mindset right this is not a game of being resource poor and building up an engine. This is a game of being resource rich and like starting at the top. And I feel like this has a similar challenge. Like you don't start resource rich, but you can kind of like neglect a lot and start at the top. And most people wouldn't see that. But like once you know it, you can't unknow it. And I'm not sure that the game is benefited from that route to victory. It's very interesting because we've talked about, you mentioned Res Arcana, and especially in the signposting episode, what games do to help you move through their decision space uh, in terms of their signposting. And like you're saying, Jake, Splendor does a lot to sort of signpost things that you could be doing that maybe aren't the right thing to be doing. And there's this optimal strategy that's sort of uh, a hidden bit in the bush over there that if you poke your head through and meander down, you can get to the end faster. And the game's like, yeah, you could do that. I didn't know that you would, but yeah, go ahead. And I, I say that facetiously because I'm sure the designer was well aware that you could do this and it's a viable strategy because it's built into this core tension. Um, but I also see how that turns a lot of people off and then makes them say, Ugh, this game isn't working right because the game sort of says do these things and then it makes doing these things not as rewarding given certain board states or certain player accounts. And then the counterpoint to that is, well, yeah, but then that's cool because if a certain board state emphasizes that and you notice that, it's really rewarding to be the one who observed that that would be viable. Um, but that's a really specific type of decision space. Yeah, it's hard to be like too critical of this, but I think like I wish that the if, if we like had the power to like pull the lever, turn the dial so that the default strategy was building up your engine from level one, that and sometimes it was viable to skip that. Like that yeah. would be more, I would appreciate that more in the design. Like you add one or two costs to the tier two cards and then all of a sudden it seems way more viable. Right. I think then the signposts would like add up uh, in a way that would be more satisfying. But I just think the whole conversation is fascinating because maybe I'm not giving like the general gaming public enough credit based on my own experience of not like solving this puzzle in my first dozen plays but like i really believe that the you know we talk about this is like a mega hit game and i really think that is built on people playing this game as it signposted right i think yeah. like the vast majority of people who are playing this game casually at home 
are doing it the way the game signposts you to do it and not the way that's actually more efficient. And that's just, I don't know what to do with that information, but I just think it's like fascinating. It is fascinating and it's cool, right? Like I think it brings out this idea that I think we always try to discuss decision spaces as objective things. And we obviously recently did an episode about how they're not, they're subjective. There's no one decision space in the game. And Splendor's really, it's cool. I will say that sort of carrying off of this, Jake, I completely agree, if only because I think the nobles are really fun. Some of my most fun turns in Splendor, right, are the turns where like, I buy this one card and it gets me two nobles at the same time and I have a seven point swing. Right. To me, that's the that's the fireworks. That's the dynamic splash that you say is missing when you're like, every turn is just collecting gems. And totally. if if the game doesn't push in that direction, then it's not pushing towards its fireworks. And it, then, yeah, I kind of agree with you. And that's why I find myself, for these reasons, kind of playing Splendor suboptimally sometimes because... I have more fun trying to make the noble strategy work where I do some zany thing. And that's who I am and how I play games a little bit, right? But it's also, I like those turns. I like, give me my three points for making this noble happy. It's so fun. Right, yeah. That's definitely the jackpot moment of the game, right? If you buy a yeah. tier three card that gives you a noble. And the, the other interesting thing they'll say is like, the nobles aren't worthless. I feel, still feel like in most of our games and our three player games too, like the a noble like a single noble is like often part of that recipe towards victory and maybe that means like we're not doing the tier two strategy well enough yet but it seems like it's still possible to do that tier two strategy and still path it out in a way that at the very end you're becoming eligible for a noble and that you know when all sinking together that could be the most efficient possible path through if your opponents like enable it yep Definitely. Also, thank you for correcting that. You can only claim one noble tile a turn. But so I would, yeah, if you buy a tier three that gets you a noble, you can get huge splash points, but you can't get two in one turn. Yeah. Um, I think maybe we can pivot to that question then, Jacob. If how the game is presenting itself as engine building, using the language of engine building, but maybe not being, is this like an engine building light game, right? Like, because when we say this, the reason why we're saying this for the people who are like, what the heck, guys, this is an engine building game. I think that maybe Splendor is an engine building game some percentage of the time, right? Where, But it's not an engine building game in terms of you're assembling your pieces and running your engine and it's creating an output. So in my mind, it uses the language of engine building to, or the mechanical language of engine building, I should say, to create these interesting decisions without actually leaning towards an engine building game. It's actually a race game. Yeah, um, it's... Yeah, and I think too, maybe like this is something that also frustrates me about the game is that it, and I don't know how much this is like the game doing it versus like the people, the community around the game, the commentary about the game, talking about the game. But like, if you come in expecting like an engine building experience, it's, I find like a, a very unsatisfactory engine building experience here. And I think a big part of that is like in engine building games that I like you get to build up and become more powerful and do like exciting, cool things. And like in Splendor, that's just not the case. And I, you know, the, and I think the biggest part of that isn't that you don't become powerful and can't get free cards at the end that are really impactful. It's that like every single card that you would add to your engine is exactly the same. It mm -hmm. just gives you a discount of one gem type. And that's just so boring to me 
in that one element. Like, I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't know what to say other than I'm trying to be like tactful here in my criticism, but I also want to be honest. That's just like, uh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard that in the Marvel re-implementation of this game, some of the cards do give you extra powers. type of powers and bonuses. And I think like that intrigues me. I, I'd be interested in playing a game of Slender that you're getting some other types of bonus or like potentially uh, changing things in a more fundamental way. But just like every single thing is like a discount of one. It's like, is that an engine or is that just like, it, it feels like much more... I don't know. Like it, it, it's just a discount. It's a discount. It's like a sale at the store, and I don't feel like I'm having an engine when I go to the store, and they're like, "This is a discount of one dollar." <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> thanks. Like, yeah. thanks. I guess. I do think that oftentimes the games that I feel like over the past however many episodes that we've done that you end up rating lower Jake are games where the your expectation of the decision space doesn't align. So I I do wonder if this if splendor had presented itself culturally as this is a puzzle race game where the whole game is being the person who can find the shortest path through the decision space if all of a sudden you're like i'm here i'm ready i have my my mental my mental roman numerals as i'm tallying these different things and i love to see the pieces fall into place or if it would still miss for you because ultimately the decision space just isn't as rewarding or compelling as you wish it was and maybe the answer is somewhere between those two yeah yeah i mean i don't know like obviously i don't even need to say this but it's like these are it's a 100 a subjective experience right and there's i can't like stop my brain from processing it in one way and maybe that's based on the fact when we started playing this this is a game i had played in the past and already like kind of grown out of favor mm-hmm. for so then we're like sitting down to play i'm like okay here we go you know i'm i'm already like a little bit like I don't think this is a game that's really for me. Whereas if it's a brand new game that I haven't played before, I'm coming in with a much more open mind. And, you know, and and I think perhaps, you know, the expectations of the decision space certainly feeding into that. So there there is a lot to admire about Splendor. Absolutely. And I don't want my personal subjective rating to put people off from playing it. At the same time, I do want to be, you know, honest and uh, in, in this podcast that when we're talking about our subjective experience of this game, if in the future I go to game day and like, who's up for Splendor, you know, I'm not raising my hand. I'd, I'd much rather play a whole, a very wide variety of other games. Yeah. I think that that's really fair. I think for me, part of the joy of Splendor too, is trying to understand why it works as well as it works, despite being as straightforward as it is and as math forward as it is, which is different than it being fun. Um, and I, I'm fully there that that is those are really different things. So I think partially my interest in this game is in it comes from the fact that I love trying to think about the way that tempo impacts the decision space, the way that tempo wins games here and what that means, even though the gameplay itself isn't, you know, the the sort of energetic sort of gallop through a decision space that I like from some of the other games in this weight like like Azul that we covered really recently. And I'd probably choose to play Azul over the Splendor most of the times in a day. But if I wanted to talk about tempo, maybe I'd say, hey, Jake, let's play Splendor and talk about tempo a little bit more because it doesn't get discussed enough in games. Great. That does it for our discussion of Splendor. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Decision Space. Uh, as always, you can find us online on Twitter at Decision SPA. Brendan is at Burnside BH. I'm at Jake Freed. 
We have a email for the show, decisionspot at gmail.com. And of course, we are always delighted to hear further discussion about this episode. We'll be continuing this discussion, we should say, in our Discord. You can find the link to join in the show notes. Um, please give us feedback too on the format. Uh, you know, do you like the what we talk about or not what we talk about? What are we calling it? Uh, what's, what's in my mind? mind? Yeah. Do you like that? Should we keep doing that? Or do you prefer the old format where we skip that and just get straight in the game? We would love to hear your feedback on that as well. Any final thoughts, Brendan? Uh, I'm really excited for next week's conversation. We're going to talk about games and decision spaces that we're looking forward to exploring in the next few months. And I think it's going to be a really good episode. So I hope you all are excited for it too. Uh, And many good games in 2022. Great. Well, let's thank Hembry as always for our intro and outro music. Their song, Reach Out, and we will see you next week. Have a great rest of your game. Thank you.